0: This podcast is brought to you by Langley & Benack, a full-service South and Central Texas law firm that delivers the highest quality legal advice coupled with exceptional client service. From our main office in San Antonio, we provide the resources of a national firm while maintaining close ties to the communities in which we practice. To learn more, please visit us at langleybenack.com. That's langleybenack.com or call us at 210 736 6600. Today's episode is part three of a seven-part series on managing business risk. This series is hosted by attorneys Dane Patrick and Mark Macias.
1: The information, opinions, and recommendations presented in the Langley and Benack podcast are for information purposes only and should not be considered legal or professional advice for any particular situation. The presentation of this informational content does not create an attorney-client relationship. If you would like to meet with one of our attorneys, please contact us through our website at www.langleybenack.com or call us at
2: 210-736-6600.
1: This is Dame Patrick and Mark Macias again. We'd like to welcome our listeners to the Series 2, third episode on Managing Business Risk. Today we're going to be talking about maintaining the protective corporate shield and also various employment practices that every business should follow to protect a business from personal
2: liability. So, Dane, we touched on this in our previous uh, podcast, but I want to remind our listeners what is a corporate veil or a corporate shield and what does veil, veil piercing mean?
1: So. As we talked about in our first series, Mark, we were talking about how a business can set up the proper type of entity so that the owners and officers and directors or other managing members are protected from personal liability. So of course the first step is setting up the proper entity like a limited liability company or a corporation. But it doesn't stop there. I mean there are certain things that every business must do to maintain that protective corporate shield. I like to tell clients that as a business and a business owner it's their job to build the castle. When they come to see their corporate attorney it's a corporate attorney's job to build a wall around the castle. And so that's what we're trying to help the businesses do Mark because both you and I being heavily involved in litigation we've seen far too many times where a business has not properly followed corporate procedures and has exposed the owners and officers and managing members to personal liability.
2: So when you talk about bail piercing, uh, what specifically are you talking about that would form a breach to this wall that you've talked about?
1: So, Mark, in addition to forming the company, the proper entity, the company needs to follow certain procedures so that that shield that they put in place to protect the owners from personal liability is not pierced. Um, There's a number of doctrines in Texas that allow uh, a plaintiff to possibly pierce the corporate shield to get to the owners and officers and hold them personally accountable for obligations of the business. So one of the most important things that a business can do is to follow all corporate formalities. In Texas, we are a very business friendly state, and so failing to follow corporate formalities in and of itself is not necessarily a sufficient reason or grounds. Uh, for a court to say that the corporate veil can be pierced. But having said that, all the cases talk about following corporate formalities is one factor that you may look at in determining whether or not the business or corporation or limited liability company is actually acting like a corporation or business liability company.
2: And more recently, the state of Texas has enacted legislation which makes it more difficult to pierce the corporate veil but can you describe for our listeners what corporate formalities exist and why are they important in order to prevent their veil from being pierced?
1: So, Mark, the corporate formalities I'm talking about are very simple. The first thing you do when you set up a corporation, after you uh, file that certificate of formation with the Secretary of State, is you want to hold an organizational meeting So if, for example, you were a limited liability company, you filed your certificate of formation with the Secretary of State, at that organizational meeting, assuming that you were a limited liability company that was going to be managed by uh, uh, managers, at that first meeting, um, the managers would want to uh, basically pass a series of resolutions on how the company was going to be operated. For one, they might establish a bank account for the company. All the managers can sign on that bank account. The managers have the authority to enter contracts and conduct business on behalf of the company. So that would be kind of your first step. And as part of those, Minutes, you would also adopt what we talked about at the f- during our first episode, which is the limited liability company agreement, which is basically the blueprint on how you operate the company and follow the corporate formalities. So in addition to that, Mark, typically, and I recommend that even for a limited liability company where the laws are more lax about corporate formalities. I recommend that every year they have an annual meeting. And at that annual meeting, for example, if it's governed by managers, which are like a board of directors, your members would elect those managers every year. Even if the members and managers are the same, you want to document that. It shows you're operating the company like a limited liability company, and that you truly are following all the corporate formalities. And now most businesses also maintain what they call a, a company minute book. And so, so you will keep all these documents in a company minute book. Once you get your company up and running and you have corporate counsel, literally you can do this by way of consent. Your corporate counsel shouldn't have to spend more than a couple of hours a year helping document uh, these minutes.
2: Well, you just touched on another important point And that is for you know the simple joe smith out there who is looking to form a company and is looking to follow these corporate formalities as, as you've laid out how cumbersome a process do you describe this to be for that person
1: well like i say um if if you're an individual and you're trying to do this yourself it's not to say you might not be able to do it yourself it's just to say if you have a lawyer who you can talk to on a periodic basis and meet with once a year you may save yourself a tremendous amount of money in the long run by protecting you and your company from liability by doing things the right way.
2: And so when you talk about doing things the right way, one of the things that uh, we often find with these companies is that they do something called commingling. So why don't you describe for our listeners what that concept involves and how to avoid commingling their personal assets with the company assets?
1: So Mark, that's a great question because as you pointed out earlier, fortunately the state of Texas has passed some legislation and we've had a uh, really a, a series of opinions that have made it much more difficult for a plaintiff to pierce the corporate veil for simply failing to follow corporate formalities. But frankly, what is probably a bigger factor that I think the courts look at is how the company is being managed on a day-to-day basis and probably the most important thing is making sure the company assets are always kept separate from the individual owner's assets so from a very basic standpoint you always want to have a company account and then the individuals always want to maintain their personal bank accounts any company expenses should be paid out of the company bank account And the owner should always pay their personal expenses out of their uh, personal bank accounts.
2: So what do you say to that person that might want to use the company's bank account to maybe make a loan payment on their personal auto
1: vehicle? I would say that is the first thing that a court will look at to see whether or not there is any, quote, commingling. In other words, mixing personal with business assets and that would be one factor the court would look at to determine whether or not a creditor of the company could pierce the veil and hold the owners of the company or the shareholders we should say or members of a limited liability company personally liable for the company obligations
2: well you talked about having a separate bank account for the corporate entity but what other forms of payment for company expenses would you recommend this company maintain?
1: So obviously the other thing that you, you see normally is is the employees will often have a company credit card and they'll be charging expenses to the company. I think a lot of times in our smaller businesses, businesses the employees are actually also the members or the shareholders and officers of these companies and I think there's a tendency often to use the company credit card to charge personal expenses then go back and try to make reimbursements from the company or to the company uh, for these personal expenses that's not the best way to do it the best thing to do as far as paying these expenses use the company credit card for company expenses and use your personal credit cards for personal expenses Okay, Mark. So we've kind of talked about the different ways that uh, companies and management can follow procedures to avoid piercing the corporate veil and maintaining that protective corporate shield in the place. But, Mark, there's also a number of other things that a company should be doing as following as follow uh, as far as following. Proper procedures regarding employment practices and things of that nature what are those
2: well there's a number of things a company can do uh, once they've opened the door and started doing the business that they've created this corporate entity for and one of the things that I think really helps from a defense perspective in litigation is to ensure that the company has a variety of guidelines and procedures that help show to the public that they are doing things to keep control of a variety of different situations. For example, uh, restaurants should look to having safety protocols and procedures for what happens when a spill occurs. Or restaurants should look to other guidelines for what protective clothing their employees should be wearing when they are uh, engaged in the company's business. Having these safety procedures in writing and, better yet, having each employee get a copy of these safety procedures is paramount to helping later defend them against claims that they were not following these procedures. And when an employee signs off on having received those safety procedures, I think it is all the more important to show later in litigation that the company uh, provided the uh, safety procedures to the person, but that they also, the employee also received a copy of those safety procedures. But beyond that, there are other things that an entity can do uh, to ensure that they're following a a variety of federally and or state mandated programs, one of which is called OSHA. For a construction company, they want to be sure that they're following specific OSHA guidelines with regard to uh, a variety of different hazards that exist on a construction uh, project so that they can then later show when the uh, situation arises that they have properly followed either the state and or federally mandated program to try to effectuate the safety of all of their employees working on that site. Another area I think that is important to think about is to have company policies and guidelines that are separate from these safety procedures and protocols. And so one such thing that we are seeing more recently in litigation is a focus on cell phone policies. When you have drivers who are operating a motor vehicle incident, it becomes vitally important that they are attentive to their driving and not distracted by things such as cell phones. And so for that purpose, it is vitally important that a company have in place policies that prevent their employees from using cell phones but then more importantly it's incumbent upon the company to ensure that that policy is actually adhered to so not only do you want to have a policy that prevents cell phone use with the operation of the vehicle you want to make sure that from the top down from the president or the member all the way down to the employee who's operating the vehicle is actually adhering to that policy and making sure that the employees follow that
1: policy as well. You mentioned a few things about OSHA and about uh, notices to employees. Are there any certain types of notices that need to be placed in the workplace governing OSHA? Like, for example, are there certain posters that need to be posted throughout the workplace in order to follow OSHA guidelines?
2: Sure. Uh, The short answer to that question is yes. And the type of poster and the type of notice that is required to be posted is going to vary from project to project. And so, you want to have a person who is in charge of safety who is familiar with that specific project to allow uh, for a request from OSHA to enable the company to provide for the specific construction related safety notices required of the employees for that particular project.
1: So Mark, you talked about all the company policies that need to be followed. You talked about uh, employment guidelines that need to be followed. What about performing certain types of background checks? Should that also be done?
2: Absolutely, that should be done. Um, More often than not, especially in an era when there's relatively low employment, companies are looking to hire somebody that they can trust, and somebody that that will be representing the company. Many times, it becomes very difficult in this lower employment uh, era to find adequate employees to operate company machinery. But in this era, it's all the more important that the company is adhering to safety policies and practices. because. Without having done those safety policies and practices, the company then opens itself up to potential liability for having failed to follow company practices that other companies in the same area are following. So, for example, random drug and alcohol testing is vital. If in a prior uh, podcast we talked about an individual working for a company utilizing a crane. Well, it is important that the company conduct random drug and alcohol testing to ensure that that person that's operating the crane is not under the influence of drugs that could affect his or her ability to operate that machinery. Uh, More often than not, though, that random and alcohol drug test doesn't have to start later after the person's been hired. The company can do many things to ensure that they're hiring the right person for the job and include a, a random, drug and alcohol test at the beginning of that person's employment to ensure that they're not hiring somebody that is or has a history of alcohol or drug use beyond that it's important for the company to conduct a criminal background check and a driver history check because in many instances they're not the employee isn't just going to be operating a large machinery like a crane, but they're going to be driving on behalf of a company. They're going to be going from project to project, perhaps in a company vehicle. And so it's all the more important that being the face of the company for that purpose, the person be somebody that doesn't have a criminal background. And so if you happen to have a person that has a criminal background, you're going to want to think twice about hiring that person, particularly when that person is going to be engaging with members of society on behalf of the company you want to have the driver history check in place because you want to make sure that the person doesn't have violations either by way of citations or a history of automobile accidents which makes that person a greater risk to be operating a vehicle on behalf of the company
1: well thank you mark those are all very helpful tips this concludes episode three, and hopefully the listeners have learned a little bit about maintaining the protective corporate shield and the importance of following company procedures. The next episode, we'll be talking about what the company should do if a lawsuit is filed against it. So I look forward to talking to you again next time, and hopefully the listeners will stay tuned.
0: Thank you for joining us today for the Langley and Benack podcast. Please subscribe to get the latest updates. If you would like to meet with one of our attorneys, please contact us through our website, www.langleybenack.com or call us at 210-736-6600.